From Brock Media, this is Never Told. I'm the producer, Nicole Davis. Each week, we'll be sharing an original story from a different writer, told in their own voice. This week, we're pleased to present The Woman in My Head, written and performed by Emma Jane Unsworth. Emma is a BAFTA-nominated, BIFA-winning screenwriter and best-selling novelist. She was the showrunner for series one of Dreamland, a new comedy drama on Sky Atlantic, Emma's fourth novel, Slags, will be published by HarperCollins Borough Press in 2024. Her third novel, Adults, was an instant Sunday Times bestseller when it was published in 2020. Emma adapted her second novel, Animals, into a feature film, which was produced by Brock Media's very own Sarah Brocklehurst, and Emma won the Biffa for Best Debut Screenwriter for her script. I'll be back towards the end to chat with Emma about the origins and intentions behind her story, But for now, here she is reading The Woman in My Head. I ask the man next to me to pass the wine. He's tall, balding, bespectacled, a professor of American studies. He passes the bottle and I pour us both a glass. He thanks me and asks me the question I know everyone has been dying to ask me since I got here to this wildly intelligent dinner party, in this ornate, candlelit room, the walls filled with paintings, the table laden with shining food on antique platters. Around the table are several university professors, a few MA students, and me. His question is this. So where did you go all those years, if you don't mind my asking, between losing your parents and starting university. And so I begin my tale. The room is hushed. All eyes and ears on me. I am the rogue at the feast, the scrappy genius, Camus in hot pants, my eyeliner almost as thick as my fringe. I am a curiosity but I feel their admiration and it fuels my narrative. I tell them how I didn't want to be defined as an orphan when my parents were killed in a car accident and so, even though I was only 13, I ran away to Paris where I worked in a bar for six years. I grew up quick. I learned a lot. I came here to Liverpool University to honour my parents because this was where they met and started training as archaeologists. I was a worldly child from the start, an only child, comfortable in the company of adults. Even though now I am only 19, I am wise beyond my years. I finish my glass of wine and pour another. Six years in Paris gives you many things including a monster tolerance for Merlot. Nobody knows what to say. It's not an easy story to comment on. When someone does speak, they tell me I'm brave. Extraordinary. I make eye contact with an older man at the end of the table. 
I'll take him home later, and he'll marvel at my grown-up house, my music tastes, my ability to make a deadly margarita. But for now, I hold his gaze and enjoy the glow of their adoring attention, my sway over the room, the reality of these emotions. Because they are real, even if the scenario is not. Who is this woman? A good question. Let me tell you a little more about her. She sees me. She calls me. She takes me as I am. She gives me space. She gives me intimacy. She heals me. She lets me swim in her mind. She lets me move her body. She gives herself over to me and I give myself over to her. We create each other. We cannot exist without each other. We are parasite and host, but which is which, I'm not sure. I don't care. I need her to survive, and she needs me. She makes me feel like new, and is the comfort of my oldest home. She has given me some of the greatest gifts of my life. She is my retreat, my sanctuary, my thrill, and my pulse. She is a million tiny, white-hot details and a huge, dunking, drowning surrender. So who is this maestro in my life? This benevolent deity? This codependent demon? Well, she isn't my lover, or my mother, or my child. No. She is my dearest, deepest fantasy. She is a woman I have been possessing, or who has been possessing me, for over 25 years. Her name is Ava Badoni. She is 19 years old. Irish mother, Italian father, She has long, curly red hair, think brave levels of tresses, wears mostly black, goth, but make it fashion, speaks ten languages, is the reluctant heiress to the fortune of two archaeologist parents who were killed in a car crash when she was just 13. She lived in Paris for six years, saving up the money to study, recovering from the loss. She didn't want to go through the care system and be defined by her tragedy. She felt prepared by her parents to go it alone. She was resilient. She stowed away in a truck to make it over to France. In Paris, she met a woman called Vivian, who ran a brothel in Pigalle, near Sacré-Cœur. Vivian took her in, let her sing in the bar downstairs for money. And that's where the growing up began. Now she lives alone in a beautiful house on the edge of a forest, which she bought with the money from her first book deal. And that's where she has stayed all the years I've known her. She has just started studying English at Liverpool University because that's where her parents studied 
and she wants to feel close to them. I remember elements of her construction. I found her face in a magazine. I took her style from a friend I admired who ran a bar and was rock and roll, blue stocking, worldly, a sort of Victorian astronaut. Her history is that of all my favourite heroines when I was growing up. Her name felt like what you'd call the first really good humanoid. Simple, reflexive, a palindrome that sounds at once ancient and modern. As Tom Waits put it, sharp as a razor and soft as a prayer. When I first met Ava, I was only 19 myself, fresh out of sixth form college, about to embark on a BA in English at university. I'd just moved away from home for the first time, into student halls. It does not escape me that this might have been the first time in my life when, like a lot of people, I felt apprehensive and a little stranded, on the brink of a new life phase, in a new city, going it alone. After years of being protected in the family home, I suddenly had to redefine myself and start from scratch. Maybe she split off in my head as an alternative identity at that point because I wanted more control over how I was seen. Or maybe she was a way of combating the loneliness, of being my own best friend. A good fantasy is like a bath. It's a reset a dip into a different place, or maybe an old soothing place if we follow the womb analogy through. The immersiveness is healing, a break from the everyday. The absorption of fantasy is similar to what we get from writing and reading. It's an escape. There are several ways I submerge myself into the fantasy and become Ava. Sometimes it's automatic. I'll just find myself being her. I'm calmer, cooler, more poised, measured. She isn't impulsive or reckless like I am. She holds herself well. Other times it's conscious. I'll choose to go in and really design my experience. In my late teens and twenties, the times I inhabited her were ardent and feverish. I'd get home from a night out and surrender to her, drunk, on my bed. I'd let myself heal the inadequacies of the evening with a spell as her taking control of a situation. The dinner party scene, for example, was a personal favourite around this time. Let's say my party repartee was a little lacking. Options ranged from a night at the student union called Double Vision, where doubles were a pound and making a stir-fry with the boys who lived in the dive down the road. I craved sophistication. I was a snob. Also, I wanted to practice comebacks and flirting and holding court. You know, life skills. There were 50 or so entry points, events-wise. First day at uni, a speech she makes to her faculty, a date with a lover, a party she hosts at her house, all of these were good starting points for a good 20 to 30 minute fantasy, which was my optimum time. My favourite times to fantasise are when I'm driving and when I'm running. 
There's something about that autopilot trance-like state, the body occupied in a familiar repetitive motion, the world unspooling in my peripheral vision that really makes for a satisfying mind jump. Music is a big help for getting into the fantasy zone, as I'm sure it is for most people. I used to drive a lot to the highlands of Scotland in camper vans to get lost for a few weeks at a time. I'd put on an album by Jenny Lewis and the Watson Twins called Rabbit Fur Coat, and that created a mood so perfect for me to slip into a good few hours of solid fantasizing. A rare treat. I've been known to go full method too, pretending to take her phone calls, writing out entire text conversations between her and another person, not just listening to her music. But whenever I need a quick fix, I go to my playlist of Ava songs. Because that's what being Ava is like. A shot in the arm, a large glass of wine. She's a hit of something that makes me feel good. Does that make me an addict? Maybe you'll forgive me for finding her so irresistible. On average, I would estimate that I've spent around 30% of my life as Ava. There are times in my late 20s and early 30s when I was Ava probably 80% of the time. Frustrated boyfriends would sulk and ask me if there was a problem if there was someone else. You're far away, where are you, they'd say. But it wasn't so much where I'd been as who I'd been. One notable holiday with an ex saw him recommending I seek help. But I didn't need help. I just needed more time alone with my imagination. I was fine. I just needed more time as Ava. In a way, I was being unfaithful. There was someone else. Another me. But I chose never to tell them where, or more accurately who, I was. I couldn't tell anyone about Ava, or what she means to me. I got close with a therapist once, but I could tell I was boring her. For therapists, I imagine hearing about people's fantasies is about as interesting as hearing about their dreams. I tried to put Ava as a character in a novel, but my editor deemed her too bleak. Which was funny, as she'd never seemed bleak to me. I live in my fantasies probably more than most. I need constant stimulation and movement. One plane of reality is not enough. As a thinker and a person, I do not cruise, I ricochet. My head buzzes quite happily with a thousand possibilities a second. I work on several projects at once, every day, and I get everything out of my head onto paper and whiteboards to clear my brain and allow it to flow. In terms of emotional needs, I have to win. Or I have to reshape the narrative into a win for myself. I need regular surges of dopamine. I operate largely on adrenaline. I function via deadlines and panic and the chase. I am a thrill seeker and a hedonist. If I'm not careful, I burn out. 
but that's where the fantasy comes in. For my restlessness, I have found sustenance in several things. Alcohol, drugs, exercise and fantasies. Of all of these, Ava is the most powerful. And arguably the healthiest. Not that it hasn't sometimes got out of hand. When I found myself driving 50 miles, for example, to find the perfect house for Ava on the edge of Delamere Forest in Cheshire, just so I could give the fantasy those few extra special details. The house needed to be in the woods to symbolise a woman who was a lone wolf on the outskirts of society. It needed a big porch for a specific fantasy scene I had about seducing aforementioned man at the dinner party. I even drove half a mile up a private road because I was sure I could see the perfect setting just beyond the trees. I needed it for my mental catalogue of fantasy images, needed to take that photo with my eyes. The car bumped along the dirt track and I almost made it, only to be told off and made to turn around by an angry resident who didn't look like Ava at all. That felt like it might be a fantasy fodder trip too far. But then I've gone further for romance, America for example, and this was a sort of romance. As the years have passed, she has never changed in age. She is still the same age she always was, somewhere between 19 and 21. She is sealed up like a message in a bottle. I wonder if I'll ever stop fantasising about her and what that loss will look like. These days, I find myself being Ava less and less, but I do go to her still. This timelessness adds to the idea that she is some kind of platonic form of myself, a place to feel perfect. We are constantly told that we are enough. I don't think we have to be. I think we can make up the deficit with our imaginations. Perfect the human with the abstract. Living as one person in one place feels so old-fashioned somehow. I don't have a twin, but I wonder if what I feel is perhaps similar to that feeling of having a twin. The sense of another, always. Of a counterpart. Someone I have grown with, shared with. My better half. The ultimate version of me. But then, why the secrecy around her? Why have I never shared her existence with a single friend? Maybe it's because fantasy is a bit of a dirty word for women, and fantasist even more so. The idea of the woman as a liar, as manipulative and duplicitous, goes all the way back to Eve via Lady Macbeth. It doesn't serve us well. Fantasies are historically associated with illness. Hallucinations are linked with viruses and psychotic episodes. They are manifestations of a physical or mental breakdown. As insights to a person's true state of mind, they are considered unreliable, untrustworthy. They are not to be desired. More recently, a fantasy denotes something silly or insubstantial. It has frilly knickers, pink neon, soft porn vibes. There's something 1970s sex party about it. It's not a serious place to live. However, my fantasies are not just a form of disassociation. 
they have not just been places to run to when things in reality were dire. They have been places I have chosen to go when I have needed a boost. It's like having the ultimate spa inside my brain, and it's free. My fantasy life is the opposite of insubstantial. It is the bedrock of my mental well-being. It is the root of my confidence and success. It is solid and purposeful. In one of my favourite old movies, Billy Liar, Tom Courtney plays a rampant fantasist, Billy, a working-class lad who lives in his daydreams and longs for a life more extraordinary. Billy says the epic line, I turn over a new leaf every day, but the blots show through. Fantasies do, after all, have their limits. I know that Ava Bedoni is, in many ways, a trope. She is Lara Croft, the dead archaeologist's parents. Come on. She is Beth Harmon in The Queen's Gambit, the orphaned genius, the extraordinary survivor, the shapeshifter with muscular language skills and secret agent agility, consistently getting one over on the world, a James Bond for the Britney generation. She is my own personal fairy tale a triumphant character arc I have mapped onto my barely undulating real life, a story I have sold myself over and over to guide me and soothe me and process the world and its daily curveballs as I weave a mythology that makes consciousness more satisfactory. She is a form of reality, if you believe the only real reality is emotional reality, which I do. The only truth is what you think and feel. But as myself, in this world, I am aware of her in a way that she isn't aware of me. And I have to acknowledge the power imbalance and see what it teaches me. I think it has a lot to do with desire and a lot to do with the idea of perfection. Perfection can never be real and we wouldn't want it to be. I would never want to embody Ava completely. Only by slipping in and out of being her can I really enjoy what she gives me? A space to exist between my real self and my idea of a perfect self. An adventure zone. A place for growth. Some kind of cerebral utopia. I had a revelation the other day about fantasies and what they tell a person. I think they tell you about the parts of you that you need to love more. My fantasies are always slick and cool and suave and unswerving which tells me I am neglecting the parts of myself that are not like that. So maybe they need some nurturing. Or maybe in getting the chance to be slick and cool and suave and unswerving, they are getting that nurturing. Fantasies are an act of compensation, spiritually and intellectually. They balance the parts of you that are lacking in the real world. And so I choose her, over and over I step sideways in my mind and I seize my transformation. I claim her as she claims me.
Hi, Emma. Thank you so much for that story. So what I've been asking all of the writers is to kind of give us a sense of how you landed on this story. You know, what prompted you to write it? What did you think when we first sent you that provocation about telling us something that you'd never told before? So I think I've been playing around over the past few years with lots of ideas of how your mind can fracture in different ways and at different points. And for me, that has sprung partly from personal experience, particularly in motherhood. I had postnatal depression after my first baby was born in 2016, and that really made my head feel like it split apart. And And then ever since then, I think I've just been trying to creatively express what that felt like at the same time as I think when you get into your late 30s early 40s you think a lot about your teenage years I certainly have and part of that is is about thinking about like who that person was and the formative things that made you who you are and which parts of that person you carry forward into the person you are now and all of the phases of your life that make you you all those versions that live in those phases I've just, I'm really interested in that, it, almost in like a bit of a quantum way, because I like physics as well in a very, very, very basic way, because um, I've never studied it and I don't know that much about it. But but I am interested in, in the possibility of there being more than one version of things in one present moment. And I think all of those things fed into this, as well as just being forced to think about, right, OK, what is what is a secret? that I've never told anyone and that I may be a bit embarrassed about because I'm a bit embarrassed about this, you know. <laughs> and it was a bit weird writing about it and it's a bit weird sort of like reading it and talking about it because, yeah, I've never, I haven't told anyone apart from those instances that I, that I describe in the essay with the therapist and then a very old draft of a novel that didn't ever work out. So, so it does feel, I feel quite vulnerable talking about it, but also... I'm just really excited to hear what people think and if pe- if other people do this and I'm sure they do and then yeah I'm just I'm just really interested in in talking about those aspects of women's lives that might be a bit shameful and probably shouldn't be as well and and I do think that the word fantasy gets such a hard time and I really love living in my head a lot and doing all sorts of different things there that I'm not doing in, in the present reality. And those things feel so crucial. And so it, it is genuinely a love letter to that ability, I suppose, and just the, the chance to be able to do that. I'm really grateful that I get to do that. I feel like it. it's so, so, so helpful for me <laughs> and necessary. Well, it's a love letter to the imagination. I think it is, it's funny, isn't it, that we attach shame to this type of fantasy because in a way all stories are an act of imagination and there's like this legitimate form that we have for expressing it and yet this version that we seem to hold back because we haven't quite kind of externalised it or made it into a story... I mean, one of the reasons I so love this essay and I so wanted you to write it was because I too have this very active, vivid fantasy imagination and life and I've never quite seen it articulated in this way before. So I do want to thank you for writing it. But I also wondered if if you felt you were shedding the embarrassment as you were writing it, as you were speaking it just now, whether you really felt like you were claiming kind of this part of yourself. Yeah, definitely. I think it's always good to get things out because it's a processing, isn't it, in those words. It's that I understand now so much more about why. I thought I knew everything about why I did it and I didn't until I wrote it down. (laughs) And writing's great like that. 
So, so I think that has just really helped me better understand that all my reasons for doing it and just make a sort of peace with it, I guess, and also think about where it might fit in the span of my life, whether it's something I'm going to do forever. It's really interesting, but I think it's really key what you just said about how it's not seen as an acceptable act of imagination in the same way that a painting would be or a piece of music. And I wonder whether that's changing as we're talking more and more and and allowing more and more a space for semi-autobiographical things or just being more open about the fact that a lot of things are. Certainly everything I've ever written is. And so really it's just it's just that isn't it it's like this is something that has its own logic and its own world that you have created as a contrast or an interpretation or a reflection or a comment or some something that somehow better informs what you're doing in this in this reality in this version of you i'm wondering if it's just ava are there other characters or is it just her that you have access to? Oh, that's interesting. No, it's just her. It really is just her. It's just her and she has never moved with me geographically or anything. She's always stayed in Liverpool. Mm. So it's like, you know, she doesn't turn up in Brighton where I live now. Maybe she will one day and that will really <laughs> yeah, freak oh me God. out. <laughs> that feels like where she belongs and I've ne- that still gives me everything I need. Mm-hmm. There's just something about keying back into that time and that everything I was feeling at that point in time and everything that I wanted to be just feels like there is it feels like there's so much potential in that still for me now even though that was so long ago more than 20 years ago I'm wondering you know you spoke about in this story about the immersiveness of like being in that fantasy is that how you approach writing in general and writing other characters do you really feel like you're embodying the characters that you write yeah I really do need to have that I really need to get into it I'm not very good at... Well, I, can, I can do certain bits of writing, like edits sometimes or certain bits of screenplays, for example, you know, when, when you've got like a very specific little job to do on something and then that feels like I don't need to get into it too much. But I think something like... I've just sent off the second draft of my fourth novel, which was so hard. <laughs> and I really felt as though I struggled to get that level of immersion and absorption because I think it's something that you you almost like, it's a muscle that you forget how to use and how to flex. And I I don't write a novel that regularly. I, it takes me years and years to kind of get work one up. And so it's kind of like every three or four years, I think I publish a novel. So I'm always out of practice, I'm always rusty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so then I'm like, oh, what, you know, why? I'm not kind of very good at doing this sort of like very, very, very deep dive into whatever you're writing about, because I think that's, that is what, what you need to do to write the really good stuff. You need to shut all the windows. You need to switch off all the noise in your brain so you are just thinking about this thing. And so for the like, the last few days of this round of edits, I've just turned off my phone, left it in the house, gone to my office and just sort of been away from everything. I'm like, right, this... And it's taken me like a few hours of watching rubbish on my computer and just like... Looking, just doing like really weird, random shit, and and then then I'm like, oh, I'm in the zone now, and it just kind of takes a little bit of time to sort of whatever the opposite of decompresses, you know, and just sort of get into that into that world and do and do the good work because I think there's so much that you've got to switch off to really immerse yourself. And for me, it's not like that's not like being Ava because being Ava, partly because I think it's not something that I've shared, is so safe and so separate whereas I'm aware of the work that I do 
that's going to go out somewhere. Someone's going to read it if I'm lucky. And so that's needs. There's a real pressure with that, and there's a fear, much more of a fear, and there's much more. There are so many um, constraints that are to do with the real world, and 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 so there's a lot more risk, I think, to it. And it's probably not quite as enjoyable. (laughs) Yeah, that's a really interesting distinction. And you brought up the safety of Ava and the fantasy there. And obviously the way that you frame it in the story is very much as a reset and a healing and as a spa. I'm wondering if it's been a process to think of it that way. You know, if it ever has veered more into, you know, it's felt self-destructive or harmful. And if it's been a journey of acceptance for you in some ways. I think I probably have worried about it at different points as to whether... I'm weird or whether I'm not enjoying life enough or making the most of life and whether there's a problem, you know, in in one way or another. I think I've also felt guilty when I've, like, been with nice people, friends and, like, my children and and I've found myself wandering off in my head and getting lost. And then afterwards I felt a bit bad about not being present, which is the, you know, the word of of the day. So, yeah, it hasn't always felt like a, a, a simple, pure thing to do, p- entirely positive. It's definitely been tinged. But, but ultimately, I think, as you say, writing about it, thinking about it, I, I can now frame it as something that that has generally just enhanced my life and really helped me achieve the things I want to achieve and stay mentally well. And, yeah, all of the, all of the good things that I think being able to move sideways in your head gives you. Yeah, I love that visual, moving sideways in your head. And finally, because obviously people know you as a novelist and a screenwriter, I'm wondering how you approached writing something that was more kind of personal and essayistic, whether it changed kind of the way that you wrote, doing something like this and knowing that it was going to be recorded for audio. Well, I have to say, Nicole, you've been a huge help with this because I haven't done anything like this before. And and I think your guidance has just been the reason why I've managed to get a decent podcast essay out of it. <laughs> so thanks. But so, but yeah, in the way I approached it, I think I wanted to do a mixture of kind of like what is a fantasy? How do we talk generally about it? And and what what do they mean culturally? And and do that sort of slightly more academic side of it. And then at the same time, do the the really immersive stuff that I love to do and all that kind of weird sort of jumping between mindsets and and being quite playful with it. And even though it's something that feels so deeply personal to me. I wanted to keep it relatively light as well, <laughs> even though it was hard to, to write. You know, I felt like I was, it felt quite serious. You know, it was a serious task. <laughs> but I'm not really a person who takes herself that seriously. So I wanted it to have a good a good mix of tones and be a fun a fun listen and yeah and just hopefully a little shout out to anyone else like yourself who does this kind of stuff in their brain thank you so much for sharing it i think it's a very serious story but with the perfect tone and yeah i hope you don't feel too embarrassed about sharing it no thank you for helping me shed my shame about this genuinely i feel um i feel very proud actually so thank you this episode of never told was produced by me nicole davis Our executive producer is Sarah Brocklehurst. Our production assistant and assistant story editor is Amy Yeo. Our sound designer and mixer is Tom Wally. Our artwork is designed by Bette Norris. 
that's our show for today. And we'll be returning next week with a brand new story from Deborah Haywood. Listen to Never Told on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.